pray together. Father, thank you that we have another opportunity to gather ourselves together in your holy presence to worship you. We come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our God, and as scripture says, our friend. And thank you for your grace shown us in the shedding of his blood for the remission of our sins. Thank you that our salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We pray that this may be a day of salvation, that this may be a day of strengthening Christians, that your will through your word may be accomplished now in our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as you can see from the text, this sermon is about the Bible on slavery. Unlike the usual, we're not going to spend most of our time working our way through the text. It's what we're normally supposed to do is read a text, explain the text, and apply the text. That's right out of 1 Timothy. But instead of doing that today, since the text does not exactly have one-to-one direct correlation. None of you are slaves, none of you are masters. You might feel like it where you work, but you're not. Uh, Given that there's not a direct one-to-one correlation, though there are principles that can generally be applied to employers and employees in the workplace today, but given that that's not an issue in our lives, we're gonna instead drop back a little bit and do what we might call exegetical apologetics. Exegetical means we're gonna open up some passages, but what I'm really seeking to do today is to answer the question, what is going on with the Bible? There's slavery in the Old Testament, and there's slavery in the New Testament. What do you have to say about that, Pastor Steve? That's what we're doing today. So here's the first point, and I'll put it up for you point by point. Number one, let's just get it out there. There is slavery in the Bible. That's a fact. And the question arises for people today, for Christians and non-Christians alike, um, given that, why didn't God just come out in the Old Testament? And why didn't God just come out in the New Testament and say, stop it all? Emancipate everybody. Let's put an end to it on the planet right now. Why didn't God do that? Why does God instead regulate, but not emancipate slavery on the planet immediately. So we're going to seek to answer that for you today. But first, before we go there, second point, let's put it up. A moment of celebration. We're all, let's just make it plain. I'm sure you're all in agreement with this. We are all really glad that American slavery was abolished. Amen? Like, is there anybody in their right mind? And there are people not in their right mind. But is there anybody in their right mind who would ever want to see such a thing as that again? Thank God that's gone. Thank God we didn't even have to live through that. Can you imagine living in the North or the South and going through that? Thank God we didn't have to live through the Civil War, which is just an awful mess of bloodshedding. Thank God it's gone. And now let's take a moment and consider, well, what made that happen? And I want to trace the abolition movement to its roots. And so point number three goes up, and that is that Christians in Great Britain, and one named William Wilberforce, the undisputed leader of it all, spearheaded the abolition movement. Here's a picture of William Wilberforce. You can look at that while I talk about him for a minute. That right there, my friends, is a man of God to be respected. That is a man of God, a man of consequence, a man to be revered, a man for whom we should be thankful. And there are his dates. Understand, please, that prior to his time, prior to the 1800s in Great Britain, 
this is a fact, everybody agrees with it, who's ever looked into the issue, all nations, everywhere, all cultures, through all of time, had slavery. Slavery was everywhere, going back, everywhere. And to our knowledge, no one ever even launched any kind of effort to try to end it. Why not? Well, maybe it didn't occur to them that that would even be possible. Maybe it did occur to somebody, but they thought, how on earth would we do that, et cetera, et cetera. It was fraught, fraught with problems. And the first person in human history to really say, no, but we have to end this, the first person to be successful in that was this man, William Wilberforce. It was in the 1700s, I'm sorry, the 1800s in England again. Let me say, going back before him a little bit, let's keep his picture up, please. But in the 1700s, we had uh, people agitating for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. The, the best one to us would be the founder of all Methodism, one John Wesley, who denounced human bondage as, quote, the sum of all villainies. But he was powerless politically. All he could do was preach, but preaching has some power, especially in those days it did when everybody went to church. And so there was influence, and with the result that under William Wilberforce's effort, he was a member of parliament, he had governmental power, and he tried again and again and failed and tried again. And, try, and finally, in 1807, due to his efforts and those with him, Great Britain passed the Slave Trade Act prohibiting slave training and trading. And not long after that, in 1833, in England, slavery itself was outlawed throughout the entire British Empire. So that was a great time for humanity. That was a great time for England. That's a great day watching humans get something right and humans do something good. This then spilled over his efforts, his influence on Great Britain and then Great Britain's relationship to us. It spilled over very rapidly into the United States so that, as you know, 30 years later, in our country, Lincoln's famous Emancipation Proclamation, January 1 of 1863, for which we are all greatly thankful. By the way, in that same time period, the, the most famous preacher in England, the most evangelical, Bible-leaving, gospel-preaching preacher in England was, who do you think that's going to be? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, right? Died 1892. Uh, prior to that, and while we still had slavery prior to 1863 in the United States, he preached against slavery. He actually had, they would, they would print his sermons in America so that we could read his sermons after he, after he preached them. And in some parts of America, I'll leave you to guess which parts, some of his sermons were sometimes burned due to his opposition to slavery. He, in one sermon, called it the foulest blot, and rather prophetically, he called it a blot which, quote, may have to be washed out in blood. That's what Spurgeon said prior to our Civil War. He proved to be prophetically correct in that regard. But due to the, the influence largely of, you want to boil it down to one human, this man is definitely the man, William Wilberforce. Slavery was ended in Great Britain. Slavery was ended in the United States. But now a next question. So did all slavery on the planet go away then? Well, oh, that it were so. So point number four, please, slide man. Alas, we must mourn that much slavery. I don't know if you realize this. Much slavery still exists in much of our world. In fact, I'm afraid that it's like the same as Jesus said about the poor, like Let's, let's level everybody so there won't be any more poor. Well, Jesus said that won't work. The poor you will always have with you. And in the same way, it seems like, alas, on the planet, due to the nature of humans, good and evil, oppressor and oppressive, there I stood into that narrative, uh, that it appears that slavery will always exist till the last day. 
How much slavery is there in the world today? Well, according to three, I won't belabor it and name them all, three reliable organizations here, we are told that there are between 40 and 50 million people who live in slavery today and forced labor and various other kinds of slavery. So let that sink in. There are still 40 to 50 million slaves on the planet. I would say if you want a real cause, if you want to fight for something that really exists, that would be a good one to fight. Uh, Which countries have the most? Um, India would be number one by quite a stretch. It is hard home to the largest number of slaves globally with about 8 million slaves. Here's a quote. Every year, countless women and children are taken from remote villages and towns and brought to Delhi where they are sold into domestic slavery, end quote. So India is the worst. After that is China with almost 4 million slaves. Then Pakistan, North Korea, Nigeria, Iran, Indonesia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Russia, and the Philippines coming in at almost 800,000 slaves and more. What about these United States? Well, we don't have slavery in terms of, of those kinds of slavery, but we do have slavery in terms of a new definition, same old thing, human trafficking. You've heard of that. And we have a lot of that in these United States. The worst states are California. You might say, well, I expect that. But then after that, Texas, and after that, Florida. And it's really hard to get good numbers on human trafficking. The range is anything between 15,000 and 325,000. But there are some pretty clear data that say that when a major sports event hits San Diego, for example, there are about 10,000 workers who are brought into the area for that event. They are trafficked in that area. So this is not merely an academic issue. Much, sadly, much slavery still exists worldwide on the planet and even in our nation right down into our time. Thank God for it's largely Christians who are leading the anti-trafficking efforts in these United States and in the world. What about, however, now let's get back to the Bible. What about that slavery that appears in the Bible? How can we make sense of it? So let me try and help you with that. This is a rather academic sermon. You can take one of those now and then, especially on an issue like this. It's what we need. So here we go. Let's consider slavery in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there were two broad and very different kinds of slavery going on. So we need, if you want to make sense of the Old Testament, I hope you're reading through your Bible. I'm in Leviticus now in my year. It'll be less than a year, Lord willing, reading through the Bible. And I've already run into slavery on more than one occasion in the Old Testament. So you're reading through your Bible and you go, what? Wait a minute, there was slavery in Israel and God spoke to it, but he didn't abolish it? What's going on in the Old Testament? So there are two broad kinds you want to know about. Here's broad kind number one. There's a slide for this. Israel is, on the one hand, commanded to enslave the people from certain cities inside of Canaan. So this was only during the conquest. So far as I know, it didn't even exist after the time of the conquest of Canaan. But Israel had a problem. They're supposed to take over the the cities and and take over the, the promised land. So the cities and the people who were inside of Canaan, where they were to go in and take possession of the land, they were frankly told, now which is worse, slavery or this? They were, Israel was frankly told by God, kill them all. So that's a worse problem than slavery. Uh, but it wasn't Israel that decided, let's just go kill them all. It was God who said, I want you to kill them all. And let me remind you, he is the potter and we are the clay. If you're having problems with that, you need a much bigger view of God. He is the sovereign. It is up to him when and where and how and by what means he will require everyone on the planet into his presence 
at what time? He determines the boundaries of our habitation. He determines how long we'll live. He determines whether you'll die by plague or by famine or by sword or by whatever it might be. God is absolutely sovereign, and he gets to say to his people, hey, I want you to, I'm done with them on the planet. It's like, go back to the flood. If you have a problem with God bumping off people, what are you going to do with the flood? where all humanity, save Noah and a few, were wiped out because all the thoughts and imaginations and intents of their hearts were only evil continually. And God said, that's it. I'm done with them. I will now require them in my presence. It will be judgment day for them. So God may do that. He's a sovereign God. And he decided to use Israel as his means of ridding the land of Canaan of evil, evil people. He said, I'm done with them. I want you to be my means. Your swords will be my means to wipe out those people. So that was inside of Canaan. But now there were cities at their borders, cities cities just outside of Canaan. And what do you do? If you move in and take over the land, now those people are going to be eyeing you. They might gather up and attack you someday. So, So the Israelites were told, go out to those cities and propose terms of peace to them. Like, don't immediately wipe them out, but propose terms of peace. And if they accept your terms, then here's what you do. You let them live, but they become your slaves. So Israel was told by God, here's how I want you to deal with those people. If they accept your terms of peace, I want you to make them your slaves. Yes, God said, make those people your slaves. That is in your Old Testament. I don't want to pretend it isn't there. I don't want to hold it back from you. I don't want you to be reading through your Bible and discover it one day and say, why didn't they ever tell me about this part? No, it's in there. But again, God is sovereign, and he may say to his people, Israel didn't say we want to make them our slaves. God said, I want you to enslave them. So what was the alternative? Kill them. So it was a mercy of God that God said, we'll let those people live if they'll accept your terms, but you can't trust them. If you just let them live in your land, if you don't make them your slaves, they're going to rise up against you one day, and you'll be dead. I don't want you to be dead. So you may go ahead and make those your forced labor. You may make those people serve you. So God told Israel, you may do this. Now, let's note, this slavery was strictly regulated. They were to be treated humanely. Also in the same vein, a little bit later in time, Israel was allowed to buy slaves from the nations around them, Leviticus 25:44. That slavery, too, was carefully regulated and treated with human dignity. Why would God allow that? Well, there are, it's very complicated. I don't want to take forever to talk about this, but you will understand that in that day, that was how the economy worked. That's how things worked. It's like A hundred years from now, somebody might say, why did they allow so much college debt? Hopefully it doesn't take a hundred years for them to figure that one out, right? Why did they allow, why did they do that to students and their parents? Why did they allow that? And by then, you know, they've solved the problem and it's not happening anymore, maybe. Uh, So it's always easy to look back and say, why didn't they? But in their time, this was culture. This was the economy. This is how nations worked and they were a part of it. So the Old Testament allows slavery, regulates it, does not take measures, fall short of measures to eradicate it. And again, if you have trouble with that, I understand, but please don't judge those days by the standards of our days. That's a big anachronistic historical mistake that people often make. This is how people dealt with the issues of prisoners and poverty in those days. But there's a second kind of slavery in the Old Testament. First, it was Israel and the nations around them who accept terms of peace. But there's a second kind, and it was this, point number two, there it is. Israelites were allowed to sell themselves into slavery. Now, that means an Israelite couldn't capture you and make you a slave. That was strictly forbidden, as we'll see in a moment. 
but you were allowed to sell yourself into slavery. How did that work? It was an economic arrangement to keep you out of poverty, starvation, and death. This is how they dealt with that in their day. In our day, you get a credit card, right? And then another credit card, and then another credit card, and then another credit card. But in our day, there were no credit cards. And so what you did was, let's say you're a farmer, and a lot of people were. It was an agrarian society, and you had a bad year. God didn't send rain, and your crops didn't grow, and uh-oh, we're in trouble. We're all going to be hungry. You could borrow. There were creditors, and they would, they would loan you money, and you could borrow and survive. And then let's say the next year was also a bad year, and now you're really in trouble, and you and your wife and your kids are going to starve and die. That's a big problem. So what did God allow you to do? Well, he allowed you to sell yourself into service to another person, and you would probably live better than you were to start with because they're rich enough to take you on. It was probably an increase in quality of life for you and your family. In fact, you might decide you want to stay there, and they would take an all and stick it through your air, and you're theirs forever because you like the arrangement that you have there. It's way better than you've ever had in your life. So this was how they addressed the important question, what do we do with people who have fallen into economic dire straits? And the answer is, this was an economic safety net. Furthermore, this was strictly regulated. Let me name for you a few of the regulations. In in Leviticus 25, quote, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker until the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, 39. In Exodus 21, we find out that this goes for seven years maximum. That guy can only keep you for seven years, and then he's got to release you. Exodus 21, you were to be treated humanely. Exodus 21 again. And Leviticus 25, 43, you were not to treat that slave with harshness. They were allowed to enjoy national holidays and the weekly Sabbath, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Exodus 21 again, 26 and 27, excessive cruelty on the part of the owner resulted in immediate freedom for the slave. Furthermore, in Leviticus 25 and verse 48, if you were the rich uncle, you could come and redeem your your nephew and get him out of the slavery. How much do I owe you to get my nephew free? So there were there were all kinds of measures that made this basically a nice working relationship for somebody whose alternative was poverty, and it had a way out, seven years, or somebody buys you out, or you earn your way out. Furthermore, man-stealing in Israel, and for all of human history and all of time, was by God strictly forbidden, expressly forbidden. Let me read you two verses, and believe we'll put these up. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him. And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, Exodus 21, 16. Had this been honored, we would have never had American slavery, right? And again, in the New Testament, the New Testament speaks to this, 1 Timothy 1.10, quote, Paul says, quote, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Well, who are they? Be more specific. For the ungodly and sinners. Well, what kind? Dot, dot, dot. For enslavers. It's a Greek word that's used only here in the New Testament, but it means kidnappers, or as it's translated in the King James Version, men-stealers. You're not allowed to steal people. See, this was an economic thing. You're a thief. You can steal jewels. You can also steal people and sell them. That's done today. Be careful taking vacation in Mexico. Don't wander off the range, okay? but also for liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the Bible makes it very clear that man-stealing, which, alas, is the root of much slavery on the planet, is strictly forbidden by God and is viewed as utmost evil. 
Now we come to a sensitive one and a touchy one. The next question we'll put up is, what about Hebrew female Hebrew slaves? So in Israel, within Israel, somebody sells himself into slavery. It's an economic arrangement. It was good for everybody. But now the man has a daughter, and she's become 18, 21, or whatever you name the age. Actually, then it might have even been younger in those days. And another guy says, hey, um, I would like to purchase her. Now, you need to understand, here's what that is. The reason for buying a female slave, Exodus 21, 8 through 9, was to marry her. What you're really saying is, I would like to marry that girl. Or, I would like my son to marry that girl. And remember, most marriages were arranged in those days. Gobs of marriages are still arranged on the planet in our day. Nothing wrong with that. So what you're saying, but she's a slave. And the guy says, well, you owe me some money if she's going to get out of slavery. You've got to redeem her. You were allowed to redeem her so that she could become your wife. You were allowed to redeem her so that she could become your son's wife. But there weren't just like female slaves in Israel. There, at least not legally there weren't. So in the Old Testament, the institution of slavery answered the questions, what to do with captives of war in time of conquest, and what to do with people who fall into dire economic straits? How do we care for them? And God, in the one case, commanded enslave those people, and in the other case, allowed. Let them sell themselves into your slavery and treat them well in both cases. So that's a crash course in slavery in the Old Testament. Now, believe me, if we had gone into every passage, it would have been a four-week series just to get through slavery in the Old Testament. So I spared you that. I wasn't the least bit tempted to do a four-week series on slavery in the Old Testament. Amen? You didn't need that, did you? But now we're going to come to slavery in the New Testament. On our way there, we're making a quick stop at slavery in Greco-Roman culture. Because the New Testament church that we're about to look into lived and moved and had its being in Greco-Roman culture. And so what was slavery like in the Greco-Roman culture? Well, it was deeply embedded in the culture and in the economy to start with. Like, you couldn't just end it without ruining everyone rich and poor. Everybody depended on this economic arrangement they had, however awful it was, and it was. But nobody even thought that we know of about how to end it. There was no plan on how to end it. And it was also exceedingly common, so common that some estimate that Rome was made up of about 90% slaves in the population. And most agree that the Roman church to which Paul wrote probably had 50% of the church were slaves and 50% of the church were free. So what was Roman slavery like? Well, it was everything. It was anything from absolutely the most abysmal, abominable, brutal thing you could possibly imagine, all the way up to you were treated really well, and you were in the master's house, and you educated his children, and you walked them to school if they were schooled outside, and uh, it was a very nice, high-paying, pretty high-status job for some people, but it was absolutely abysmal for most. And into that culture, the Lord Jesus came, and the Holy Spirit fell, and churches were planted, and now what do we do with slavery in the New Testament? So here we come. Next slide, please. Slavery in the New Testament. Now, let's just go ahead and admit something here. We admitted a while ago there's slavery in the Bible. Now we're going to admit there's slavery in the New Testament. And the next slide, please. So the New Testament, like the old, does not categorically oppose slavery. Let's just face it. That's the truth. If you want to try and make the New Testament do something else, well, you're going to have to finagle things, and that's not being faithful to God's word. The fact of the matter is the New Testament does not categorically oppose slavery or seek to abolish it outright. It does, however, regulate it among God's people, and as we'll see a little bit later, 
principles of the Old and New Testaments did eventually lead to the abolition of slavery in our parts. So there are things in the New Testament that led to the eventual abolition, but the Bible didn't come right out. The New Testament doesn't come right out and say, end it now. And this is no surprise because the Christians really had no way to end it. Suppose God said, all right, I want you all to end slavery. Well, half of them were slaves. How are they going to end slavery? And the rest of them had no governmental authority, or very few of them would have. They had no political influence whatsoever. It's not like they could vote for people who were, that, that didn't exist. So what were they to do? So the New Testament church was largely absolutely powerless to end slavery. The only option available to them, because they had no governmental authority, might have been to, to, to get going a slave rebellion. Well, there were some slave rebellions before and after the New Testament time, and how did that end? With all the slaves dying. So that's probably not a good idea either. So what were they to do? The New Testament does not set out to abolish slavery, but like the Old Testament, it regulates it. Let's go to point number two on the screen now, please. So the new passages that regulate slavery stress fair and just treatment and eventually led to the abolition of slavery. So now we come to, there you see a list of those passages. So now we come to some of the passages addressing the slave and then some of the passages addressing the master. So let's go to our passage, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, and here's one of the passages regulating slavery. And first, God addresses the slave in Ephesians 6, and it says bondservants. Let's just pause there a minute. It's, it's the Greek word doulos, which can mean any of the ranges of Greco-Roman type slavery. It could have been the most abject, servile, I own you, you get beatings kind of awful thing. And it could have been, you know, you're a higher up person in the household family and you're pretty wealthy and you do pretty well. And it could have been anywhere in there. And our English Bibles seek to use different English terms to describe which level they think is being addressed. And here they've chosen the level of bond servants, which was above the lowest. But that's just their choice. And I think what they're really trying to do is avoid the word slaves. The fact of the matter is, in the Greek, it's simply the word slaves. By the way, there's a new version of the New American Standard Bible called the Legacy Bible, in which the authors have actually just put the word slaves in right here. So literal translation, good for them. Here's what the command is to those slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, literally with singleness of heart, as you would Christ. So like with conscience to how I would obey Christ if he was my master, that's how I'm to obey my master. By the way, you can see here in a general, not a one-for-one one exact way, but in a general way, there are principles that apply to us and the employer-employee relationship. It's nothing like slave-master. We all understand that. But there is a principle here that you do not want to be the employee who's the troublemaker, who's the rabble-rouser, who's stirring everybody up, who's always causing the boss you know, trouble. We don't like the—you're not to be that one. But you're to be the one who obeys your earthly master with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So this is what the slaves were actually told to do. And then there's more about it. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. You're really Christ's 
slave. You're a slave of Christ. And as a slave of Christ, we want you to wear the name of Christ and bear the name of Christ well to your master that you may adorn the gospel. So we want you to be his favorite slave, his most faithful, most serving slave. That's what, that's what the New Testament commanded these slaves to be. Now, in a way that's not roughly one-to-one analogous again, let me just say that ought to make you the employee who isn't wasting the boss's time. You're not the one always standing around talking when somebody's supposed to be working. I remember years ago while I was a seminary student getting ready to hopefully be paid someday in the ministry, I had some woodworking jobs and I worked for a while at a woodworking job where uh, the big boss, his name was George. He was very good to me, we had a good relationship and he got in his car and went out to do something one day and I don't know why, but the number two guy in the shop said, let's all take a break. It wasn't break time. We just, let's go take a break. Went outside. Some of them had a smoke and were standing around and I'm standing around out there taking a break, not supposed to be on break. And George pulled back in. And for some reason, when he pulled back in, he looked right at me like, what are you doing? And I felt about that big. And I felt like, man, I just blew my testimony. I should have been the one who said, no guys, well, how would that have gone? Right? No guys, it's not break time. Let's keep working. You're not to be the employee who disappoints George, and they were not to be the slave who disappoints their master, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God, that's the will of God, from the heart. Here he takes it to your heart. You're to have a heart that says, oh Lord, help me to bear your name before my master and help me to endear him to you, my savior, by the kind of good slave he has made me. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will. Don't be the grouchy slave. Don't be the angry. Don't be the mean. Don't be the always bucking authority slave. No, with good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing, why should I do that? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So God doesn't come in and try to emancipate it. Like, how would the Christians have done that anyway? They were a teeny little group in a massive Rome where this was embedded in the economy, they were kind of powerless to emancipate themselves or anybody else. And so God just said, look, I know where you are, and here's what I want you to do in that circumstance. We see the same thing, different wording in Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at it. 3.22 to 24, bondservants obey in everything. By the way, when Paul says everything, we know he doesn't really mean everything. There would be some limits to this. I'll leave you to imagine what those might be. Sometimes when preachers say something, there are, they don't state all the possible uh, limitations to what they just said. We're in good scriptural ground when we do that. Paul, but Paul says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily. Be the hardest working employee, the hardest working slave you can be, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Peter chimes into where, 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 where slavery gets rough, where slavery gets bad. What's the slave to do? 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, there were certainly masters who were good and gentle, but also to the unjust, and there were certainly those. Knowing human nature, we know there were those. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
Now, here's a harsh verse, but it's in your Bible. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, were there masters who beat their slaves? Well, there were. May it never be, but there were. There are. And what credit is it if you, when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Paul almost called them to be like, I want you to be a super slave. You can actually even suffer unjustly, and you're going to be more concerned about what they think of Jesus Christ and how you suffer justly than you are thinking about your own heart. This is like super slave territory, like, Lord Jesus, give us grace. So these are some of the passages in the New Testament, but here's the best one. Here's the favorite one, 1 Corinthians 7.21, which I'll boil down to just this part of it. Paul says, if you can become free, use it. Do become free, absolutely. So these are passages that address the slave. There were a few that address the master. Let me go through one of them quickly. It's Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And masters do the same to them. What's the same? Treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect. You're a Christian master. You want to be the best Christian master they can imagine. You wear the name of Christ well. They say, man, if that's what Christ does in a master, I want to know Christ. That's the master you want to be. And see, this tends toward the end of slavery. This was taken into account when people were thinking, hmm, if that's the case, then maybe we ought to just scrap the whole thing. Let's find a way. You're to do the same to them. You want them to say, wow, I want to know this Jesus because look at the kind of master he's made my master, gracious and kind and beneficent and understanding. And stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. See, that's tending toward the ending of slavery. There's a leveling there. Look, remember, you're on the same footing as him. You're the master, but you're under Christ, and he's the slave, but he's under Christ, and that renders you two on the same ground, and there's no partiality with Christ. So I'm going to skip Colossians 4.1. It says about the same thing, but I want to take you to the book of Philemon, which pretty much, the book of Philemon pretty much contains the principles that actually ended slavery in the Christian Great Britain and America along with principles from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we're all created alike in the image of God. We all bear God's image, very important passages. But listen to some of what's in Philemon. I read through a couple, Philemon a couple times just thinking about this, and I wound up underlining too much in my Bible. So, you know, if you underline everything, then nothing's underlined, right? So I did that. Philemon, here are some of the key verses. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. That name means useful. Onesimus got free. He got over to Rome. He wound up where Paul is, and Paul led him to Christ. And now Paul's sending Onesimus, who he says was useful to me, back to Philemon, the slave owner, and gives Philemon some directions. And here's what he says, verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So how many slave owners in Greco-Roman culture viewed their slave as their very heart? This is new. This is different. This will tend toward ending the whole slavery abomination thing. I'm sending him back to you, and I'm sending my very heart. I love this slave. So Philemon, you're to love him. And if you love him, that's going to lead to some things between you and him. Verses 15b through 16, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
See, you're no longer going to view him, view him as a slave. You're going to view him as a beloved brother. That's going to change everything. That's going to, ch- if you're, that's going to change the way you're treating him. A beloved brother, especially to me, Paul says, man, he's a beloved brother to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? This was radical. And then down to verse 7, so if you consider me your partner, and you do, receive him as you would receive me. I'm sending your slave back to you. Just imagine he's me and treat him accordingly. Well, that would pretty much tend to the end of slavery, amen? Like, treat him like he's me, Paul. And then he closes, verse 21, or almost closes, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Well, if you're to treat him like he's me, Paul, but I know you're going to do even more, what are you going to do for this guy? Free him? Give him a job? Hire him? Get him going in a career, give him some land, whatever it is that's necessary so he can take care of his people. So it's principles like these from the image of God all the way down to some of the, the commands for masters down to the book of Philemon that led Christians over time to say, wait a minute, now that we're in England and now that we do have some governmental authority and now that we can do something about it, let's do it. And they did for the first time in human history. So when people complain, you Christians, you have slavery in your Bible, you just say, actually, slavery was everywhere, and it was the people of the book who ended it finally. It was Christians who finally said, our principles in our book are leading us to say, we got to stop that thing now that we are finally in a position governmentally, economically, where we can. So in closing, here we go, just a couple quick points in closing. Number one, let's admit there's slavery in the Bible. Don't Don't be afraid of that. Don't hide that. It's just what it was back then. Don't judge their day in view of our day. It's what it was. Second, number two, God strictly regulated the slavery among his people, making it, at least telling them, commanding it, that it would be humane and merciful. And then thirdly, principles in the Bible over time led to the abolition of slavery. It was Christians with their Bible who said, wait a minute, All people are created in the image of God. I'm in the image of God. My slave is in the image of God. That means they are worthy of honor and respect and dignity and who took things like commands to masters and who took things especially like the book of Philemon and said, look, this changes everything. And it's Christians who got that out of the word of God and said, okay, we got to go to work and try and end this thing. Seeds were sown down through time, but it wasn't the fullness of time to end slavery until you were in England in the 1800s. Number four, so here's what this whole sermon was really about. So please don't throw out your Old or your New Testament. This was apologetics. And please be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that lies within you. Please be ready to do some apologetics and explain. Well, somebody comes, you're Christians, you have slavery in your Bible. Yeah, we do. Let me explain it to you. Let me tell you what was really going on there. So please don't reject Christ because the Bible has slavery. It's the people of the book who finally ended it. And please don't reject your Bible. Don't throw out your Old or New Testament. Please understand God was at work in history and in culture and in peoples and in time. May the blot of slavery pass away from the earth. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. 
We do pray that the gospel will run with such power in India, in China, all the way down to the Philippines, all the countries and others that were named. We pray that the gospel would run with such power and so many would be converted to the grace of the Lord Jesus that this, this scourge of slavery would be abolished in all lands. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we know that there are lasting scars and lasting wounds because of slavery in our land. And we lack the wisdom or the humility or whatever it is to be able to solve them all so far. Help us, Lord Jesus, that we may be as brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow creatures made in the image of God, treating each other with appropriate dignity and love and honor and respect. We pray for all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you like to talk to a cornerstone pastor? All you have to do is text pastor to the number on the screen and one of us will be reaching out to you. Thanks. Pastor Stan. I talked way too fast in that sermon. You get to slow it down now, right? <laughs> well, thank you, Steve, for that sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, one of our themes today has been the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And his faithfulness is new every morning. So every time that we come to this table of communion, we are reminded of God's steadfast love. We are reminded of his faithfulness and his endless mercies. And if you are a believer in Christ, we welcome you to join us at the table of communion. If you need elements, you can find them at the back of the sanctuary. And today, our communion meditation will be taken from the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 9. And the apostle John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals 